It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 9th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. All is calm, but by all accounts, this could just be the calm before the storm. A political storm, that is. After three and a half years, Westminster looks set to agree this week on how Brexit will happen. Leo Bradker and Michal Martin meet today in discussions that could result in a Valentine's day general election here and politicians in Northern Ireland must agree to work together to reinstate the Stormont Assembly by Monday or face the people in an election there. Talks broke up yesterday evening at 7pm with three of the political parties but the Northern Ireland Secretary Gillian Smith and Tonish to Simon Coveney continued talks late into the night with the two big parties Sinn Féin and the Democratic Unionist Party. Jim Wells, DUP MLA for South Down is on the line and a very good morning to you Jim Wells and good morning. thanks for joining us. I think people were expecting that uh, the skeleton of what would make a deal would have been announced yesterday. I think the skeleton's out there but it's yet to be uncovered. Um, my understanding is that there is a document circulating around which uh, is the bones of some form of deal but it hasn't yet got to the stage where it can be released to the media. So um, it's at a very sensitive and difficult stage. And as Arling Foster said at the start of the week, we are in the space where agreement can be created. And what's the obstacle? Well, two obstacles, um, Irish Language Act and the Petition of Concern. And indeed, if you you, uh, abolish the Petition of Concern, you automatically get an Irish Language Act because uh, there is a majority at Stormont in favour of that. Um, People in Northern Ireland have no problem with the Irish language, but they don't want it enforced. They don't want it in in their faces. Uh, They don't want it to be compelled to, to... to learn it or use it, um, there are some who, uh, who who love the language and want to to be uh, 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 you know, promoted and uh, uh, cherished, and there's others who, who have no real interest. And uh, you've got this this difficulty that some people just do not want it um, in their faces, as it were. Uh, and I hear that there's there's various ways of getting around that. To, being considered. Mm. Remember, there's nobody in Northern Ireland who speaks Irish as a first language. Nobody. 
uh, whilst we've got 20,000 Polish speakers, 15,000 Lithuanians and quite a few Chinese who, who have uh, their own language as their first language. So it, it is a difficult issue. And we, we've just we've proposed that the way around this is to have a culture act, which everyone can buy into, which will uh, ensure that um, all cultures and traditions are treated equally. Right, uh, but why not uh, a standalone Irish Act uh, and look at the other languages uh, in uh, a separate move? Uh, the Irish language in Northern Ireland has been weaponized by one particular party. They see it as part of their ongoing campaign to, uh, to dilute the Britishness of Northern Ireland. Um, it is interesting that unionists have no problem, for instance, with Irish dancing or Irish music. In fact, Irish dancing is taught in orange halls because both those aspects of Irish culture are, are uh, exhibited in a non-threatening way, an inclusive way. The problem is that the language, along with parades and flags, has been seized upon by one party and is being used to further their cause. And that, that, is, our, that is our difficulty. It's not so much the language per se, it's the way it's being abused by individuals. Okay, but do you not accept that it is uh, the native language of many people in Northern Ireland? Well, there's nobody in Northern Ireland has spoken Irish as the first language since 1860, uh, when the last person who was a native Irish speaker died out. And indeed, the Irish language until recently was not a particularly controversial issue. It is much more recently that Sinn Féin have uh, adopted it as one of its... um, cards in the pack, as it were, uh, as part of its ongoing campaign, along with parades and flags. And, you know, the problem is we're simply not prepared to buy into that. But, and I emphasize there's a big but here, Mm. we have no difficulty whatsoever with steps being taken amongst those who wish to learn and use the language to have it promoted. That's that's not our difficulty. It's not my, I don't speak any words of Irish as far as I know, okay. um, but I don't for one minute want to put impediments in the place of those people who do want to learn it. But do you reject it when people say to you that it is their native language because they're of Irish descent? Well, they are, yes, um, but few of any of them speak it. I think the classic example mm. was when Mary Lou MacDonald and Michelle O'Neill were at a press conference stormed and TG4, which is your mm. Irish language TV programme, asked a question in Irish and there was blind panic because they couldn't couldn't understand it. And they had to rapidly draw somebody in who could speak Irish to answer the question. In everyday life here in Northern Ireland, you go for months mm. without ever hearing Irish spoken. It's just, it's just a non-event. But there are people who cherish the language and they should be encouraged. But that's a, a British imposition on the people of Northern Ireland, uh, those of Irish descent, that is, uh, and to, to a large extent the people of the Republic of Ireland, uh, because well, Irish Michael, as a language was outlawed. Well, Michael, can we then conduct the rest of this interview in Irish? No, well, certainly, How much Irish well, well, cer- well, certainly not with me. No, exactly, and probably with most of the people who are your listeners. But that's the I point, mean, as a, a result of British rule. Yes, but the reality is that all indigenous languages in Europe are threatened by the big Spanish, French, German and English. I mean, the reality is that indigenous languages are struggling throughout the world, and that's just the, the, the nature of what's happening in our society at the threat- moment, because English is the language... Threatened, perhaps, yeah. but not outlawed by a, an invasion and well, oppressive rule. Well, I... Hang on, oppressive rule. Michael has spent £129 million promoting the Irish language in Northern Ireland over the last seven years. 
they have their own Irish language schools, own, own Irish language culture, uh, Irish signage. Okay. There has been a huge mm. amount of British taxpayers' money spent but in that, Northern Ireland. That doesn't take a, a away from the fact that it was outlawed under British rule. It doesn't uh, take away from that fact that I'm not able to speak or to you or converse with you in Irish this morning or there Mary Malou MacDonald can't answer a question in Irish for that yeah. matter. Uh, the, the, the fact is uh, and remains that Irish is the native language of people of Irish descent uh, and they're not able to speak it because it, it was outlawed by a foreign oppressor. Well, can I assure you, Mike, that has long since ceased to be the case and we've gone to the other extreme where our governments have made huge strides to try and promote and foster the language. That's not the issue. It's the fact that one particular party has decided to make it a political weapon. And that's the difficulty. And what I would say to the genuine lovers of the Irish language is to detach themselves from the politics of it and pursue their culture in a non-threatening way and then they'll find that you... Sorry for talking about it, but what do you say to the nurses uh, who were out in the picket lines again yesterday in Northern Ireland? What I say to them is their, their, their work and the funding for the health service is an awful lot more important than Irish language. Well, why, 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 why not go back to work and govern Northern Ireland? We would be back tomorrow morning if Sinn Féin would return to Stormont. I mean, it's as simple as that. There are seven but you won't return to Stormont. You're telling us you won't return to Stormont over the Irish language, which is an no, no, irrelevance we, no, no, to you. No, no, we will return to Stormont tomorrow morning without any preconditions. I mean, the, the DUP for three years have been ready and willing and able to so return to Stormont. So you accept an Irish language act? No, we'll return to Stormont where this issue can be debated in the normal way. But if Fine Gael mm. pulled out of the, the doil... Without, a, D, without a DUP veto, without... Uh, the uh, petition of concern available to you? No, no, because all the petition of concerns there to protect the rights of minorities. There will be issues which will arise, and we do need a petition of concern to protect those okay, rights. Okay, so but you're saying that the Irish language is an irrelevance to you, but you won't return to government because of that irrelevance. It's because it's being used as a political weapon, and we're not prepared. And that, and that, that political weapon means that your principle is such that you'll deny uh, the health service what it needs in terms of political support and governance. No, no we'll go in tomorrow morning and do our best for the health service and every other issue. We are not the ones that walked out. Sinn Féin walked out three years ago, brought the institutions down. Would Leinster House collapse if Fine Foyle or Fine Gael pulled out? No, it wouldn't. They would continue. But unfortunately, the system we have is one of the big parties pulls out. Unfortunately, everything collapses. Let's go back in and let's discuss... Okay, well, it's funny you say that because both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael might pull out today, yeah, but we'll find out about that a, a little bit later on today. But speaking of Fine Gael, it seems as though the DUP has quite a, a lot in common with Fine Gael and Taoiseach Leo Vradker for that matter because the DUP believes, like Fine Gael, that the RIC should be commemorated Absolutely. here uh, through a state commemoration. And the Taoiseach has said that because of the controversy that has surrounded this, this has set back a, a bid for United Ireland. And again, a point that you would agree with Mr. Vradgaron. Well, of course, I don't want a United Ireland, so you know it doesn't matter to me whether it's delayed for a year 
100 years, mm. we, we just don't want it to happen. But certainly it has shown that beneath the Scots surface of Irish society, there's still a lot of antagonism towards historical content of British rule in Ireland for, for, for many centuries. This was simply a small-scale mm. event to celebrate those Irishmen, and the vast majority of them are Roman Catholic Irishmen, who protected society through the old RIC and the Dublin police. They were going to have an event to commemorate uh, their, their work, and it has created political controversy and boycotts and councils saying they won't support it. And I think that's a very sad reflection that still in Irish society, there's this failure to adopt mm. a wider sympathetic approach to its full history and not just Irish republicanism. But do you believe that the Irish should celebrate British rule? The, the Irish should should commemorate, I think is the phrase, rather than celebrate all aspects of its history, including the brave members of the RIC, many of whom who paid with their lives, mm. who did so much to protect Irish society at a very difficult time. And this was this could have potentially be a low-key event, which really wouldn't have created much uh, waves at all in Irish society. But then there are those who decided to latch upon it and threaten all sorts of disruption. And unfortunately, uh, the, the, your Taoiseach has had to back down and it's the same as when the Orangemen decided to march in Dublin in 2005. We saw the raw bigotry against unionism coming out so clearly amongst some, and must emphasise amongst some of Irish society, and we've seen it yet again with this announcement. Well, I'm not sure it's against unionism. It's against the idea of celebrating a, a foreign occupying force that not only outlawed the native language of this country, but also executed many of the country's leaders. Well, that wasn't the RIC we're talking about. There was a concern that this would then move on to celebrating British regiments such as the Black and Tans. That wasn't the issue. This was to celebrate and, and to commemorate mm. those who were native Irish Roman Catholics in the vast majority who protected society under the old Royal Irish Constabulary. Mm. Uh, you know, but people but they, they, but they, they were the Royal Police Force in Ireland uh, that were then supported in doing the work that they weren't able to do themselves by the Black and Tans. So that is why people people would see it as a way of celebrating British rule, rule that outlawed the language and executed the leaders. Yeah, and Ireland will only be a fully inclusive society when it can commemorate all aspects of its history, even the ones that they find uncomfortable. And the difficulty is, while she have no difficulty whatsoever celebrating uh, the actions of militant republicanism, for instance, in 1916, mm. where there was bloodshed on a, on a very widespread basis, you cannot even countenance anything that commemorates the other side of the coin. Well, Sinn Féin so, have suggested celebrating the 12th, or at least that that should be looked at uh, across uh, the table as oh, part of a border poll. Thank you very much, Ms MacDonald. We celebrate the 12th already. We don't need permission from Sinn Féin to continue to do that. Yes, but... I mean, that that's part of our cultural not, history already. It's not uh, looking for permission to do it. Uh, it's suggesting that perhaps uh, it could ha- happen across the island of Ireland. Well, there wouldn't be sufficient members of the Orange Order, I think, in most parts of the Irish Republic to have a 12th of July type period. No, but in a united Ireland. Or, well, in the United Ireland, I don't think, for instance, there'd be huge numbers in Cork or Waterford or, or Sligo celebrating the 12th. I mean, you can't mm. throw in as a concession something we already have and, and cherish mm. and has been happening for 300 years. I, I thought that was a very unhelpful comment made by Mary Lou MacDonald. But equally, you know, we have to accept that we have a very diverse historical context and we have to learn to commemorate all aspects of that. And therefore, 
the RIC, whether Irish like it or not, are an important part of your history. I think it would be important to commemorate the many Roman Catholic Irishmen who died protecting their society as a result of their membership of that organisation. Okay, do you expect, uh, just to conclude uh, this morning, Jim Wells, uh, that you'll be asking nurses uh, uh, and other people in Northern Ireland who want a government restored to vote for one in an election in an assembly poll? No, I think if I was asked to guess, I think we will have some form of settlement um, which will avoid uh, any form of election required in the near future, and that will include both a, an assembly election and a border poll. Um, there's no stomach for uh, a border poll in Northern Ireland. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die on Tuesday. Lots of people might want to die down, Ireland, but if they're told it was coming quickly, they'd suddenly change their minds. So I think, therefore, we need to make Northern Ireland work, and we need to get back into devolved government and solve for ourselves the many problems we face. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, as always, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Jim Wells, DUP, MLA for South Down. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, they say uh, that uh, the crisis between Iran and uh, the United States may be easing uh, with both sides appearing to step back from this crisis that has escalated over the past couple of days. Here's some of what President Trump had to say when he spoke at the White House. Iran appears to be standing down, which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. Now, whilst uh, America may be stepping back, Iran may be stepping back or appearing to step back for that matter, this may not be the end of this crisis. Here's Iranian professor Mohammed Mirandi of Tehran University uh, in America speaking to NPR. Iranians have been strengthened. He's united Iranian society in a way which I think he hasn't comprehended. And the united Iraqi society against the United States in a way in which he and his administration haven't comprehended. Well, will there be more trouble? Uh, again, here's Professor Morandi. And I think that is going to be a serious challenge for the United States in the coming weeks and months. I don't think that as a result of this, the U.S. position in Iraq is sustainable and uh, therefore its position in Syria is not sustainable either. I think ultimately the United States will have to withdraw. Now, let's uh, hear directly from Iran. Mary Louise Kelly is a journalist for National Public Radio, NPR, in the United States. And uh, she's been speaking with a a local uh, in Tehran. Nasser Hadian first visited the U.S. as a student in the late 70s, before the revolution in Iran. He has closely tracked U.S.-Iran relations ever since, including from his perch as a professor of international relations at Tehran University. You okay if we use our microphones? We settled in at a table near the window of Rosati Cafe. The air thick with shisha smoke, Iranians chattering around us. And I asked about next moves, what he's watching for next from the U.S., whether Iran will feel compelled to act beyond the missile attacks on military bases in Iraq. You know, they both can claim victory. Neither of them wants war. So things are going to remain... Uh, the same things are going to remain within within control. Still, Nasser Hadian concedes that what passes for in control right now makes him pretty uneasy. 
You've been a professor of international relations for three decades. Have you ever seen a worse moment in U.S.-Iran relations than this Never week? Never than this week. I was, as I said, that for I can tell you for last three, four nights, I had to sleep only all together, not more than five, six hours. I was really worried. People in both our countries are doing this. Yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah, because, because particularly after after the killing of the general Soleimani, you know, I knew that Iran is going to do something. I mean, because the expectation was so high. Hardly any government official could could be silent or not to do anything. And go, to me, of course, the government government should have acted more prudently, managed the expectation better, that in case if they didn't want to do anything, they had the opportunity. I want to put to you a question that I have been asked uh, by people back home this week. People say, does Iran feel like a country about to go to war, a country on war fitting? And I feel funny asking it of you because we're sitting in this lovely yeah. cafe <laughs> with people smoking and drinking nice drinks and tea around us. And it's so crowded with people having a birthday celebration upstairs, we couldn't get a table. Does it feel, because I don't usually live here, does it feel different? Does it feel like a country gearing up for a greater conflict? No, they don't think it is going to be a war. Uh, but it may be a little bit deceptive. Let's not forget that many of the people who are the decision maker today are veterans of the war. Fascinating stuff. Uh, that is Professor Nasser Hadian speaking with Marie-Louise Kelly, a journalist for National Public Radio in America. They met in Tehran in Iran. Now, let's uh, bring matters closer to home and a, a quite bizarre story of how three people arrived at uh, the City North Hotel yesterday. Uh, Stephen Brain, crime editor with The Irish Sun, is on the line. And a uh, very good morning to you, Stephen, and thanks for joining us. I'm sure uh, people will have heard uh, about uh, the story that you're reporting on on the front page of The Sun today under the headline of Park and Joyride. But tell us uh, about how three tourists ended up in the city north and where they thought they were. Yeah, it's a really extraordinary story, Michael. So it is. So it, the, the development happened in the early hours of yesterday morning, about uh, just after uh, 1 a.m., now, you had three tourists um, who were due to get a, a, a flight to America. Now, their flight was delayed, so they were then um, t- uh, offered a hotel accommodation, and that's where they were going to stay, close to Dublin Airport, in the Carlton Hotel. But So they were in the, the Carlton Hotel uh, minibus, and the driver of the minibus had just got out and was helping an, another passenger who was outside with their luggage when three passengers decided they were remained in the, the minibus van. It was a Ford Transit van, and as they were sitting there, uh, two men uh, got into the, the minibus and took off at, at high speed, and when they were leaving the airport, uh, they uh, crashed into a taxi and drove on. Now, the, the three uh, tourists remained in the back of the van, and the van then drove out of the airport and drove for another uh, 25 minutes until they got to Julianstown, and uh, and the, the passengers were then told to get out of the, the, the van, which they did. And, but they were, were unaware of what was happening. We, we, mm. we spoke to the, the City North Hotel 
that's where the, the passengers were dropped off. It was only it dawned on them really when they were in the, the hotel what had happened. They had no idea fact, that they'd they, been they, hijacked. It, it wasn't meant yeah. to be. Yeah, yeah. 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 A couple and then from, obviously from there. A couple from France, and a woman from Portugal. Uh, they realised uh, when they went into the city north that they had been involved in this very dramatic chase, as it turned out to be, that uh, went both sides of the border and saw a PSNI car and a Garda car being rammed on different occasions by these two fellows from Navin, as I understand it. Yes, that's correct. Now, thankfully, um, the, the people who were in the van uh, weren't hurt and, and no one else was hurt, even the members of the Gardaí or, or the PSNI. And it really was a, quite a, a dramatic incident where you have the, the two guys in the, the minibus, minibus van and taking off. Now, we have a picture today in the Irish Sun of the damage caused to the minibus, you know, the, the various crashes it was involved in. So they take off, they head towards Dundalk, they, they hit a, a, a Garda car, they then go across the border into uh, Cross McGlen, they hit a PSNI car, they drive on, they, they go into Monaghan, and they, they hit a, a regional support unit car uh, from the Garda, but they, they abandon the, the minibus and they steal a, another car, and it, it, that car is involved in a crash. So we're very lucky that we aren't dealing with fatalities here, not just the two people who were in the, on this rampage, but you know, members of the, the Gardaí uh, as well. So uh, it lasted for about an hour and a half, so it did, and they were finally uh, apprehended and then brought to Craigman Cross. OK, and the courts will hear all about it this morning, I think. We leave it there for the moment, yes. though, Stephen. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us, Stephen Breen, Crime Editor with The Irish Sun. Now, there's been a 13% increase in the number of enforcement orders issued by the Food Safety Authority of Ireland. This is in the course of 12 months. Dr Bernard Hegarty, Director of Enforcement Policy with the FSAI, is on the line. Good morning, Bernard, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, tell us a, a little bit about uh, the work that you do generally uh, and uh, the type of breach that leads to a closure order. Right. Well, the Food Safety Authority of Ireland, uh, the main work of the inspecting the food business is actually done by the uh, inspectors in, such as environmental health officers and the HSE and other inspectors and other agencies at different stages in the food chain. And uh, they have programs of uh, food control uh, inspections and sampling uh, in all food businesses um, through, uh, that are uh, existing in, in Ireland to, to ensure really that those food businesses are complying with the law. The law lays down legal obligations for food businesses to comply with a lot of food legislation with an emphasis on the food hygiene legislation. Okay, and there were 124 enforcement orders over the course of last year. Uh, Not all orders are as serious as others, uh, but uh, there were six closure orders in uh, the course of uh, the last month uh, across December. And perhaps uh, one of those closures at Lidl in Drogheda uh, will give an indication of uh, the type of thing that you protect people from. Sure, sure. Um, the orders, six orders were served. Now, all six have since been lifted because the food business is concerned have, have rectified matters to the satisfaction of the authorities. Um, but nevertheless, it's a serious thing to have done. Um, the condition to have a, a closure order served under the Food Safety Authority of Ireland Act, which is the legislation that was used in this instance, is that the, uh, a, there's a grave and immediate danger to public health from the conditions in the premises. So that's quite a, a high bar. 
Uh, and in the case of uh, Lidl in Mel in Drogheda, there was a high case of rodent activity. Uh, and uh, I take it uh, there was a lot of rodents there uh, because there was a lot of concern about rodent faeces uh, and rodent urine uh, across uh, the shop uh, and indeed on worktops and on some of the utensils uh, that would have been used in the preparation of food. Well, uh, the, what the closure order states is that evidence of rodent activity was found in the food storage and preparation area. Now, that's, uh, so it doesn't indicate quite how, what the, how extensive the, the infestation was. But obviously, any uh, issue with pest control um, is very serious uh, breach of food safety legislation and poses a danger to public health. So it has to be dealt with um, immediately. And um, uh, pest control does continue to be a problem. Uh, we see uh, quite a few instances and throughout the orders not just in the the legal one uh, where um, pest control is a problem along with um, dirt um, a lot of dirt uh, built up in premises uh, poor temperature controls um, cross-contamination where raw food and cooked food could potentially um, be get the cooked food could get contaminated from Mm -hmm. the germs that can be present in raw food and poor hygiene practices uh, generally uh, along with things like um, uh, inadequate controls to prevent allergens um, uh, being um, present in food. Um, this is a very serious issue for people who suffer from things like um, um, peanut allergies, for example, that they can rely on statements that products uh, do not contain nuts or other allergens. Okay, and I think it's been a particularly bad year for rodents uh, and rodents coming in uh, to uh, places because of the particularly mild winter last winter uh, and uh, the survival rate and so on. I suppose they can come in anywhere and they're coming in to try and stay warm uh, but uh, when they do come in uh, I gather uh, you would hope that people would notice and particularly when there's evidence such as urine and faeces around uh, that uh, it wouldn't need an inspection to discover that there were rodents on the premises. Uh, exactly. Um, remember, an inspector pays a, a visit, an unannounced visit, but um, the inspector, he or she, is, is only seeing the things that are there, present in the premises, uh, and the, the food workers and the management and the staff have a particular responsibility, because they're there. Mm. They see um, what the inspector has seen. Um, before uh, and and to continue uh, in business without addressing the matter matter satisfactorily, that that is the problem, um, where they really have to you know pay attention to their their legal obligations. And if they're not clear in them, um, there's uh, resources available on our website fsai.ie. A uh, uh, legal obligation, but a moral obligation as well, because absolutely. Uh, I'm absolutely. sure people's stomachs are, are turning at the idea sure. of, of eating food from somewhere that uh, was infested like that, uh, and yeah. because you can end up very sick. Oh, absolutely. And the food, food uh, poisoning uh, can be a very serious thing for uh, people. It isn't just a matter of getting a dicky tummy. Mm. Uh, it can have um, actually fatal consequences. Uh, so it's uh, really important that all food businesses are aware, um, not just the, the six in whom the orders were served last month, but all that um, it's important to really continue to pay attention um, to uh, food safety and maintaining those high standards. Uh, there's about 50,000 food businesses in Ireland and you know the majority, I'm pleased to say, um, are uh, not served enforcement orders because they are making those efforts to, to comply with the food safety uh, legislation that's in place. Okay. But for all of them, they need to know that there's an active enforcement program that's underway. You know, last year, on average, 10 orders were served a month. And um, really, all food businesses that are food business listening, they need to think how do they prevent 
um, the inspectors um, seeing uh, conditions that are unacceptable. Okay. And the answer is they've got to um, you know, put matters right themselves before the inspections. Very good. We leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Dr. Bernard Hegarty, Director of Enforcement Policy with uh, the Food Safety Authority of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the doll is not set to resume until next Wednesday. We'll hear later on how it may actually be dissolved before the politicians return to Leinster House. But the government is working today and the cabinet is to meet in Merino, which is in the constituency of the Minister of State for Disabilities, Finia McGrath. And the focus will be on disabilities. Let's talk about what the government might be looking at with Senator John Dolan, who's an independent senator who was involved in the establishment of the Oireachtas Disability Group. And a very good morning to you, Senator Dolan, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. I understand... Morning, Mi- Mike, and, and welcome to your, to your listeners this morning. Thank you yeah. indeed. I understand Minister McGraw will bring a, a number of memos to the government, but what do you hope the government to act on as a result of today's special meeting? Well... Today's special meeting is unprecedented. It's a momentous occasion in terms of the Cabinet as a whole. And, of course, that's totally directed, obviously, by, 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 by the Taoiseach. And um, so there'll be work uh, issues in relation to justice and equality, um, the health, social protection, particularly around the jobs area, and education. So that's where they're focusing on. Um, I think it's a good start. Now, I haven't seen, we have, we'll yeah. have to see what comes out of it. Uh, because, to be quite honest with you, um, if, if you just take, for instance, uh, just one county that you serve, uh, Louth, for instance, just 14% of the population in Louth have disabilities. They have employment issues, they have transport issues, they have housing issues, they have health issues. Uh, there are a whole range of things, access. These are daily grinds for people with disabilities in families that are listening to you this morning and neighbours of people that are listening to you. Mm. So whatever comes out this morning is not going to solve all those issues for people. I think what I'm hopeful for and what needs to happen is that we will see after today a Taoiseach grabbing the disability issue by the neck and saying this is a whole of government issue. Every single one of us around the Cabinet table have, have, have to throw something in to actually solving this issue. They're focusing on four departments and four particular areas this morning, but there's another there's, <laughs> there's another 12 departments. Now, I, I'm not saying it's not good to have a meeting. Absolutely it is, because this hasn't happened before. But we have to remember to take the pressure off the health and personal social services from the health side. The issues about people being on income supports. Why aren't people, more people employed? Uh, so, how do people get out and about? Is public transport accessible? Mm. Are they actually living in a house that's accessible? Can they get out uh, to their uh, local community? Can they participate in things? So it is a good start. They're starting, if you like, at the hard end of it, but they actually will need to focus on where does somebody go? Uh, How does somebody get out of their house? Have they a house that's accessible to live in? Mm. Have they a, a decent income to live on? Can they go and say, yeah, I'll, I'll, Mike, I'll have a cup of coffee with you in such and such a place to, uh, on Sunday or Monday? Can they get there? Have they a the few bob disposable income to do it? Can they participate in local clubs and groups? And do they know when they need 
particular services that are there for them. Uh, so, and, uh, they're the issues. So they're uh, and if not, if their rights. human rights are, are being denied to them, uh, and uh, there is uh, the rights of persons with disabilities, uh, this is a United Nations Convention that dates Convention, back uh, yes. to 2006. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's exactly all of these. I'm talking about them as ordinary, everyday things. Mm. But the denial of those is the denial of a human right and a reason, or to put it another way, a reasonable expectation that you can live in a house or an apartment that's accessible to you, that you can get out onto the pavement, that you can get on public transport, that you have as good a chance of getting a job as anybody else. And we, we, we keep hearing about we have full employment, mm. oh, no, no, not, not for disabled people. For instance, in Loud, uh, 21% of disabled people were at work, according to the last census. And that was 51% for the general population of the same age. Yeah, which means close on eighty percent of huge denial. people with a disability are not able to work or not well, able no, to no, get no. work. <laughs> mm. I'd be contesting mm. that they are able to work. Mm. Everyone is able to mm. work. Mm-hmm. Uh, people will need training and supports. And like for instance, a lot of people don't go into work now till they're 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 a quarter way through a century. Mm. They're twenty three, four, five. Now the state has invested heavily in all of those people, and um, so. The investment needs to be equally put into people with disabilities in terms of, and it's like transport is an issue in relation to employment. So there's things, access to buildings, to facilities, to libraries. So it's not just... Are are you at all cynical about today's cabinet meeting in that uh, it quite possibly could be used as a way of agreeing policies uh, that would form part of an election platform and may never be implemented? Well... The, the, I, I think there's a huge number of people with disabilities that are cynical and jaundiced um, about because they've heard so many principled promises given over the decades, not over the years. Um, in my area of work, I can't afford, if you like, to stay cynical or to be cynical. Um, clearly, um, a pup doesn't always turn into a champion greyhound or whatever, but... Uh, it, the, the, I and others have been calling for governments to take leadership and to take central control over these issues. This is a very strong sign that that's okay. happening. Now, it's a sign. Signposts don't mm. get you to where you're going. They tell you where you want to go is. OK, but well, we'll hear the principal so statements later today and, and time will tell as to whether they'll be implemented. I have to leave it there because we have to go to headlines. Okay, Apologies Mike. for that and thank you indeed for joining Thanks. us here on the programme this morning. That's Independent Senator John Dolan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good, Good morning. morning to you, Marie. <laughs> Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Suzanne from Navin doesn't normally agree with Jim Wells, but says he has a point in relation to marking all historical events. You can't just pick and choose depending on which side you are on. Okay. Jim Wells would hate to think of the orange parades being celebrated here because he would have nothing to give out about, says Tom from Drogheda. Well, he said he didn't expect that they would be celebrated here. 
Uh, Ray also from Drogheda says, uh, Michael, as we bend over backwards to appease the unionists, can you ask Jim Wells the next time you have him on, what concessions are the unionists going to do for us down south or the nationals in the north? Well, I'm sure like people in the south, Jim Wells would say that people in the north want to work together and to live alongside each other. You spoke to local Deputy Fergus O'Dowd yesterday, Michael, on the RIC commemoration and Jim from Navin was in touch to say it's not up to Charlie Flanagan or Leo Vradker to decide whether the RIC should be remembered or not. The Irish people should be consulted on these matters. It would also be a waste of taxpayers' money when our health and housing are a disgrace. They seem to need Joe Public when seeking votes and forget about them when they get into power. Okay, well the Minister, as you know, has postponed the event and says uh, that uh, people will be consulted before they decide what to do now. But let's uh, go to Dublin District Court where Lisa Smith uh, appeared in front of Judge John Hughes yesterday. Uh, Tom Toot, court reporter, was in court. He joins us now. A very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. It appears as though the prosecution has been given another eight weeks uh, to build their case against Miss Smith, Tom. That's right, Michael. The case was listed yesterday for the service of a book of evidence. However, um, you'll recall that, I mean, Lisa was only charged at the start of December. And, uh, you know, after that uh, stage, there was 42 days uh, to, to produce a, a book of evidence. By, um, when, that, when you get to near the end of that stage, you have to, and you're not ready with the book of evidence, the state must apply for an extension. And that's what happened yesterday. The, the, the state solicitor in court said the investigation was complicated and substantial and there was information that needed to be obtained from overseas and, and the, the investigation file was not yet complete. However, it was expected that it would be completed in, in the coming weeks and the prosecution asked for an eight-week adjournment to complete the book of evidence for Lisa Smith's trial. Uh, you'll recall that uh, she, she had been charged at the start of December. She was refused bail initially at Dublin District Court on, on three days after she arrived back in Ireland from Turkey. And, uh, but she subsequently brought uh, an application, a fresh bail application to the High Court uh, just before Christmas, and that was successful. And the High Court granted bail in her own bond of €500. Euros. It also required a €5,000 surety, of which a 1000 had to be lodged. Now, uh, there were some complications in, in getting that fully approved, but eventually it was. She did stay in, in custody over Christmas, but she managed to take up bail on New Year's Eve. Um, she was then released, and um, she appeared yesterday again. It was her first appearance since taking up bail. Now, she, she didn't address the court, but on her behalf, her solicitor, Peter Corrigan, uh, appealed to the DPP to consider uh, discontinuing the case. He said this, that the evidence uh, does, well, didn't reach a sufficient thresh- threshold to support the charge. And he has asked the DPP to consider dropping the case. He seemed to be suggesting, uh, I take it from your reports in the papers at least this morning, he seemed to be suggesting, Tom, uh, that there was a difference of opinion within the DPP's office as to whether the evidence did meet that threshold. That's right. He had been present when she was detained for a number of days after she was brought back to Ireland and she was questioned in the city centre guarded station here. And uh, he said during that time he, he saw all the evidence that had been presented and put to his client, um, and and uh, furthermore, he did say he understood that there there had been um, you know uh, kind of a difference of opinions about whether or not she should be charged uh, at that time. Uh, now, having said that, the the judge 
uh, couldn't make a formal ruling on that and, and said that's really an issue for and it is really an issue for the trial court and the judge said it was it was an issue at this stage for the DPP to consider not the district court so he granted the application uh, sought by the state to give to get another eight weeks to finish the book of evidence and keep the case going up until then. Uh, he said he was doing so in the interest of justice. Um, and in the meantime, Lisa Smith, she's going to remain subject to a number of strict bail conditions that were set down by the High Court. Mm. Uh, one of them is a, an internet ban uh, and social media ban. And she's she can't leave the jurisdiction. She can't apply for a new passport. She has to live in a an uh, address in the northeast of the country and um, she has to sign on regularly at her local guard station daily, twice daily in fact, and she also also obey a curfew. Those conditions remain in force and uh, she'll be subject to, to them uh, for the, until any change in the case. Mm. Um, now, as we, we were told, we, you know, uh, at various points, we haven't reached a stage where a plea has been put to her. Mm. Um, however, we have been told at various points in the case by the defence uh, in court that um, she will be denying these charges. We were also told in her first hearing, and we got this image, uh, kind of very colourful image, of uh, how she got back to Ireland, and the description was that she'd walked with her toddler uh, daughter, who was only age two, to bombs, poverty, and cesspit camps, and desert mm. to get back to Ireland. I imagine uh, she has an incredible story to tell. Absolutely. And, he, and when in the High Court, she had also, you know, she, mm. one of the main um, arguments for pleading for bail was so she could be re- reunited with her daughter. Mm. Uh, how did she appear to you in herself? Uh, I think we probably all saw her on television last night and she looked very calm uh, on the outside, at least. Uh, she looked pretty well, in fact. Uh, I, I don't know uh, if it's just me or if I, I'm wrong to have even thought of it, but I, I thought it was a, a little bit strange uh, to see her wear makeup. Uh, she appeared to be wearing makeup and I, I thought that was strange given uh, the idea of the hijab and how she appeared to uh, cover her face the last time she was in court, but she seemed calm in front of uh, the cameras and looked relaxed uh, and at ease with things. Did she appear to be that way within herself to you? Yes, her demeanour in court was the very, very same. She stood at the side of the court room and listened carefully to what was being said by the prosecution solicitor, her own lawyer, and also the judge. She didn't interact with the court, but she stood quite calmly there and certainly was taking heed of everything that was being said. Which is uh, pretty cool, given uh, that uh, the charge that we're talking about here could result in a 10-year sentence. That's right. We're, I mean, the, the, the offence is under um, terrorism legislation, the Criminal Justice Terrorist Offences Act, and it can carry a 10-year sentence. And it, It's alleged that... It, in the charge that she was a member of the Middle Eastern terror, Islamic fundamentalist terror, terror group ISIS between 2015 and 2019, uh, up until, right up until her arrival back into in, in, to Ireland. Um, well, you know, the, the public will know that, you know, Lisa Smith had been a former member of the Irish Defence Forces. She'd been served with them after leaving school. And then some point later in her life, she, she moved away from there and she converted to Islam and got married and, and subsequently left the country for a while, uh, for, for uh, quite a significant period leading up to her um, deportation and, and being brought back to Ireland. Okay. We'll hear more in uh, the coming weeks. As you say, uh, the prosecution has uh, another eight weeks uh, in order to uh, make its case against Miss Smith. Uh, but thank you indeed, Tom, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Tom Toot, court reporter there, who was in the Dublin District Court yesterday when Lisa Smith uh, appeared there on those charges. Now, let's go back uh, to the phones and some more of the comments that you have there, Marie. Yes, Michael, if we can go back to the RIC commemoration and the controversy surrounding that 
that and the interview with Fergus O'Dowd yesterday. Anthony from RD says it's clear that Charlie Flanagan went on an almost solo run of which the deputy does not want to admit or discuss and like all politicians politicians uses the phrase going forward to try and deflect attention from what was clearly a mistake and Anthony would be interested to know how much money has already been wasted and what he describes mm. this traitorous plan. Okay, well Charlie Flanagan says it was the right plan and he's doing the right thing now and not implementing the plan. A texter says Irish people won't be bullied and we won't to commemorate the people who acted on behalf of the British bullies. Moving then to that uh, hijacking of the bus mm. at Dublin Airport, uh, Margaret says, Michael, can you imagine the impression those tourists that were on that bus now have of Ireland? No. Um, <laughs> I don't want to, at least, no. God, says, it really is an incredible story and really they will is. take home an incredible story. They, I they imagine sure they're will. being uh, interviewed on French radio this morning or Portuguese radio. Well, you can imagine yourself yeah. if you were in no. another country and that no. happened. No. You wouldn't be in a rush yeah. to go back, would no, you? No, I don't think so, no. Geraldine was also listening about that story and mm. says, what is going on with people at all? Imagine them poor people being left at the side of the road. Mm. Um, and also she wanted to refer to the speculation about a possible general election on February 14th and mm. she says do they think that people really want to go out and vote on Valentine's Day of all days <laughs> <laughs> oh, so yeah. there you go show yeah, the love yeah, show yeah, the love yeah, yeah. maybe the 7th maybe the 14th uh, it may be April it may be May uh, we'll find out perhaps later today OK we'll finish on that Michael alright thanks for that and thanks to everybody who has been in touch if you'd like to add to what's been said as always We'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Irish Independent reports uh, today that a local independent councillor, Sharon Kogan, who won two separate seats in the local elections, is saying that it is unfair and unjust that she doesn't get two grants for each of the seats. Uh, the grants are worth €250 Euro and uh, they're paid as an initiative uh, to encourage more women to run for office. Sharon Kogan is on the line and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. You got the €250 Euro you're entitled to as a female candidate who was elected. Is that right? That is right, and it must be a very slow news uh, news today when uh, the, the papers have taken this up. Um, I have no idea where uh, the Independent heard it, but yes, I had written to the Minister. I had applied for the two grants for uh, the two seats which I won, and the applications had to be in with the Department before the end of June. Um, I applied for the two the two the two grants. Um, I was co-opting at that stage Amanda Smith, who currently is an independent councillor and female, which the grant was applicable to. So these grants were applicable to females to encourage females into politics. Who were elected and, uh, into politics? Who were elected at, mm. uh, who were elected mm. into politics? Mm. Uh, in, into into it doesn't matter who you're elected. Mm. It's still two. I, I, I still two seats were got by two female independent candidates. And that is it. That that actually is the, is facts. So therefore, he, uh, I believe the department should have paid me out for that second seat. Yeah, but uh, the other person you mentioned uh, didn't contest the election, did she? No, it, it, no, she didn't contest the election. She was my co-optee, and she was an independent female. Um, and uh, you know, the, the but the grant is to encourage people to stand in the elections. The grant, the grant is for people. Yeah, and I stood in the election, for, and I got two women. seats. Yeah. And I and I won two well, seats. I was democratic. So, sorry, I was democratically elected in both areas. Yes, and I I was declared elected in both areas, 
uh, by the people uh, of the Late Town area and the Ashburn area. Mm. Now, I believed I was entitled to, to that uh, that second payment of €250. Euro. Um, I felt it was very unjust that uh, it wasn't paid to me. Why? I did write to the Minister. I did write to the Minister to, to seek it. €250 Euro is, is a lot of money for an independent. Uh, it, might, it might not seem a lot of money to... to to, to all those people that are in radio stations throughout the country or all those pay, pay, people that are paid uh, public sector. But it is a lot of money to an independent on the ground uh, who, who does the work that I do and that, that uh, Amanda Smith does on mm. every single day for the people that we represent. So, um, yes, I believed I was entitled to it. I believed I should have been paid it. Um, unfortunately, the, the minister decided I, I, I wasn't entitled to it, mm. and that's fine. I have to well, move I, on from I, it. I think and it's a lot of, of money. Uh, there's uh, two hundred and fifty euro available to you. Two hundred and fifty euro that has been paid to you, uh, and paid yeah. pay, paid to you because of your gender. It uh, wasn't paid out to any of the men who contested the election. No, uh, well, uh, as you probably know yourself, um, every single party. Would uh, would have candidates running in all the elections, and all those all those party candidates would be funded by their party. We don't have a party to fund any campaign. Well, the the the, 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 the grant was initially for the parties no, only, wasn't it? Uh, no, so the that they would reach the quota. Parties, no, there was a, there was an allocation of monies given to each party towards female participation. Yeah. By the way, I, I, I by the way, if you're if you're looking to see if I, I agree with gender quotas. I absolutely don't agree with gender quotas. But this quotas. money was introduced for, to, for, to, to reach gender quotas. If the political parties fielded 30% uh, female candidates, uh, they were to get yeah. this €250 Euro per candidate. So it's a gender quota payment. It is a gender quota payment. Then you it was, are right. Then, and it was specifically for which female against, candidates. Which, which you're against, you say. Well, uh, I, well, I, well, well I am against it, to yeah, tell you the God's so, honest truth. I believe anyone that, anyone that, that is elected whether it be male or female, they get elected on their merit and they get elected on their work and their track record. That's what I've always believed. However, I believe that I, I've also served the public very, very well. I'm committed to the role. I give 120% to the role. I'm out on the road most yeah. days until 10, 11 o'clock at night. I do it seven a, days a week. As a lot of men who are, are, are in public office do, uh, and they'd say, well, I didn't get the 250 euro. Uh, as a lot but of... They got, they, but they did... Sorry, sorry... They got most of those men that uh, were elected. Um, are you talking about independent men or party men? Both, most of the party both. men are, are funded by are funded by um, their parties. Uh, as are the women in parties, yes. But as, I, are, as are women in parties. Yeah, yeah. I'm, ta- I'm talking about yeah, both. Exactly. I'm talking about independent councillors, party councillors, whichever. Uh, but a lot of the men uh, who. Uh, were elected uh, will say, well, I didn't get the two hundred and fifty euro. A lot of the independent, right. a lot of the independent women, if you like, uh, who were elected, got the two hundred and fifty euro. But they'll be sitting yep. here this morning saying, I only got two hundred and fifty euro. Why? Why is? Why would Sharon Keoghan get five hundred euro? Sharon Keoghan contested election in two areas, and Sharon Keoghan got elected in both areas. The people yeah. elected me in both areas. Yeah. I was deemed elected in both areas. I, because of the, the rules and regulations and the legislation surrounding that, mm. I could only take one seat. Yeah, and uh, a, a, but I a, lot, was a lot of people as, took issue with the fact that you could uh, run in both uh, constituencies, uh, and it may lead to legislative change. The, the, well, that, the, well, that the, that's up to the government to, to put the legislation in place for, to prevent that happening again. Well, that's what a lot of people know, would like to see happen, so that the well, likes of yourself well, and Kevin well, Callan couldn't well, do I this again. Know. I mean, I, I certainly the people that I represent every single day. Are not are not one bit annoyed with the fact that I took two seats. I can assure you on that because they know I'm going to be on the ground to serve them, morning, noon, and night, seven days a week. If things go wrong, 
They know I'm going to be there. I committed to opening two offices. I, I, I have an office in Javik and I, I've opened a full-time office. Oh, yeah, but there was one job available. You wanted two jobs. You wanted two salaries. You wanted two sets of no, expenses no, and payments. And now you're looking for two, two grants. Two salaries. There was never going to be two salaries. The legislation doesn't allow me to get two salaries. I've never, I've never said I wanted two salaries. You're, they're your words, Michael. I've never said that. You're after saying I want two salaries. Well, I you don't wanted, want two well, you salaries. wanted both seats, didn't you? Sorry. Yeah. Why did I want both seats? What, so number, you've got to ask yourself, number one, why did Sharon Kogan win two seats? Ask that question. And that, the answer is very much uh, to do with the work that I do. People want good representation on the ground. They want somebody that's going to get out there and do the work. An independent took two seats. Do you think the parties, the political parties, want to challenge Hogan to take two seats? Absolutely not. Mm. So, you know, I won two and, seats and then because you, I worked very hard for the public and the people that I represent in both of those areas. And, then, and I make and I make no apologies to anybody for taking those two seats. And I, I and and you well, know, you, you I, I am running for the, I am running for the I am running for the you general thwarted, election. Michael. Thwarted, people know yeah, exactly thwarted, what they're going to get when they get Sharon Cogan. You thwarted the democratic process, didn't you? In that, no, I did not. People Absolutely didn't. Not. People didn't get the opportunity to elect a councillor. So people did get an, an opportunity to get elect a councillor. People now in the Ashburn area, for the first time ever uh, uh, in the history, of, in the history of the Mullins, who's, who's they have this, a full-time office in that area. Who's this no per, who's no the, politician has who's ever person opened an appointed? office in that town before. Who's this person right. you appointed? Uh, people didn't elect that person, uh, and you want a grant for her. You want a state grant out of taxpayers' money for that person who wasn't elected. Michael, we earn €17,500 a year. Yeah. Seventeen half thousand euro a year. If you had so been allowed to keep OTs, would you have do, taken it? It probably twice. works out about four or five euro an hour. Oh well, then do and something and else. You, and, and, and you're telling me that I, that I should be treated and not be given. I should be treated differently. Two hundred and fifty euro was available to every single independent that was elected. Yeah, you got I put it. another. I put another independent uh, female into politics, and that two hundred and fifty euro should have been paid. And to that me. other female yeah. gets seventeen and a half thousand as well, does she? She gets seventeen and a half yeah, thousand. And, and had you been had you been allowed to keep both seats would you have taken 17,500 plus 17,500? Well I wasn't uh, as you well know Michael under the legislation I couldn't have kept the two seats the current legislation doesn't allow me to keep the two seats. Well, as, so I was never as, going to be as, getting. As, as I was you, never as, going as to you, be getting. As two you ages. well remember, you said yeah. beforehand that you would have been able before you you, you would have been yes, able to, right. and that you were going to take a constitutional challenge until you were told afterwards that that was nonsense. No, no, I didn't. It wasn't nonsense. It oh. was the cost of it was the cost of taking the constitution. There's no grounds challenge. for taking a constitutional so, challenge. So I was democratically elected. Dem- a democracy rules at the end of the day. You, I could have gone to. I mean, I could have, and I wanted to, but it, it was the cost involved of going but, to. But then, to, to but the then, high court but to what, take a case. what difference does democracy make when you ignore the democratic will of the people and appoint somebody who didn't even stand for election? Sorry, I haven't ignored any. Uh, sorry, the democratic will of the people voted Sharon Kogan. The democratic will of the people. Yeah, not that still, other person. Still, still, sorry, they still get Sharon Kogan. I, I have. Well, they're paying somebody with, else. With they're sorry, paying somebody else. They've actually got. They've actually got two councillors. They might have voted. They might, they might have voted Sharon Kogan, but they're paying somebody else seventeen and a half thousand. Sorry, but they were still going to be paying somebody seventeen and a half thousand. Sorry, there was a seat there. There was a seat there worth seventeen and a half thousand yeah. to any councillor. Yeah, and it was up it to happened, people. To, it and it was up to people to vote. Who would take that seat? 
that, that, that opportunity was taken away from them because you ran, you stood, you got elected and you gave the seat to somebody else uh, who yes, never I stood you're, and never got elected. You're 100% right. I gave the seat to somebody else. We opened a full-time office in, 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 in the, the Ashburn area in, in, the village of, in the village of Stamullen. We run a full-time office there to serve the people. Now, there is no other councillor in the country, in the county. I know there's another independent in uh, Nick Killian runs a full-time office, but there's no councillor in County Mead that runs full-time offices. We work extremely hard on the ground for the people. I, I make no apology for asking the Minister for that €250. Euro. It was the first time in political history that a woman was ever elected, uh, an independent was ever elected into two areas. I, I thought yeah. it was unfair and but, unjust that he didn't pay me the €250. Euro. That would have gone some way to uh, paying for the cost wanted, of these two offices. But, but, but am I right in thinking that you wanted €250 euro to be paid to a woman for contesting an election, no. to a woman who didn't contest an election. Sorry, sorry. I wanted the two hundred and fifty euro to be paid to me. But you got two hundred and fifty. Sorry, no, for the second seat. Oh, you wanted five hundred euro. Sorry, I wanted the two hundred and fifty euro for the second seat because the deadline for the co-op, the deadline for the yeah, application was the end to- of June. Which is a Amanda total. wasn't Amanda wasn't co-opted until the eighth of July. I applied for the two grants because I knew I was getting. Uh, I knew those two independencies, mm. and that's that a, was that's the a total of that's a total of five hundred euros. That is a total. It's a total of five hundred euros. And, and you, and, Michael, and, and did if you, you, if, did you, if, you did if you are trying to criticise the value, I'm not trying to criticise anything. You asking, are, so I'm you're not, trying to criticise the value of Sharon Kilgan. I'm not criticising the value of Sharon. You're how, trying to how, you're how, trying how, to rubbish how, the value of Sharon Kogan, no, the value of Amanda Smith, and the value that questions. we bring to the people of this county. And I I think it is very disingenuous of you. It is really really hard for independents out there to 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 work the political system and okay. to try and make ground on, in the political okay. system. Okay. And well, I, that, you know, that, it's that, a measly, to be quite honest. There's more important issues today for this government than Sharon Kogan's two hundred and fifty euro. Yes, well, well, it was something that I wrote to the minister. Well, you about. got your two hundred and fifty euro. Yes, I did see. Yeah. yeah. Look, get in there. To, if you want to talk about the issues, get in there and talk about the homeless you have there in Drogheda and every single town around the around the area. Talk about talk about the, the, the people on the, on the trolleys there. Hit hit. Please hit the government that are not doing their job, but certainly don't be hitting the people that are working hard on the ground, like myself and Amanda Smith. Are. We're dedicated to the public that we serve. We're here in Dublin with a full time office. Right. I'm up in Stamullen there with a full time office, and I work really, really hard for the people of this county. So and tell, I make no so, apologies for it. So, well, well, well I, without asking you to apologise for it, can you explain to me why you want five hundred euro for being a woman who was elected? as a woman who doesn't believe in gender quotas? Well, number one, this money was allocated to every single political party. Why should I be treated differently? It was... If it was elected to every single political party, why should I be treated differently? It was paid to women candidates. Sorry, it was paid to... Absolutely. As you agreed, as you agreed, it was a gender quota grant. Now, you you want money to be paid to you because of your gender, despite 500 euro, despite the fact that you don't believe in gender quotas. Can you explain that to me? Well, I I don't, sorry, I don't believe in gender quotas. And let me get that. Mm. I don't believe, I think, everybody should be elected on that. But you want 500 euro because you're a female politician. No, it's not, sorry, by the way, no, I cut my 250 euro. I got my 250 yeah, euro. Yeah, you want I another want the 250. Other, the other yeah, 250 yeah, euro. Yeah. I, so that's the, the payment that that hasn't come through. Um, single political party gets funded in this country. 
every single political party front in this country. Independence do not. We have to work ten times harder. Oh, yeah, but you can join a political party. I mean, I think you tried to join Fianna Fáil several times over. No, I didn't. Sorry, what do you mean I tried to join Fianna or, Fáil? Or, well, well, Fianna well, Fáil... Uh, uh, well, you know, I mean, the facts are, and you and you do know the, the, the facts because you, you, you interviewed me a number of times yeah, in relation to yeah. my political history. You know I was a member of Fianna Fáil. You know I was a member of Fianna Fáil National Executive. Yeah, but they wouldn't you run you as a candidate. Fianna Fáil would not put me on, on, on a political ticket. Yeah, and you know, and I was never I was never selected at any stage by Fianna Fáil. Mm. In fact, at the interview stage... Which is why you uh, went as an independent. And I, I went to the interview. I went, I went for the interview and after the interview they told me, Fianna Fáil headquarters told me that they'd done, uh, uh, they'd done a survey that Sharon, Sharon, unfortunately we believe you're not, you're not going to be elected and you're not very popular on the ground there and you won't take a seat. So, you know... To be quite honest, um, you know, this 250 euro is a 250 euro that I want for Amanda. Amanda was elected as a, as a, as an independent there. I want that money. Appointed. Uh, and I, sorry? Appointed as an independent. She, she was a, it doesn't make any difference. Oh, it's it does make any I could have given that seat, I could have given that seat to a male. I gave it to a female. Yeah. She deserves the 250 euro. I applied for the two. There was two seats there by two independent okay. females, and we deserved that payment. Right. We, di- I, we didn't get we didn't get it, and uh, on for- I didn't I didn't get that second payment for Amanda. But that doesn't mean that uh, I'm going to stop doing the work that we do. I'm sure. Continue working hard yep. for the people of this county, and that's exactly what I intend to do okay. going forward. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining thank us. Thank you. Bye. 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 As always, that's independent councillor Sharon Kilgan. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. The Christmas holidays are almost over. Well, there's less than a week left before the doll is scheduled to return next Wednesday afternoon. But not all things go to schedule. And if you're reading the Irish Examiner this morning, you may... Uh, be concerned to hear that the politicians might not return next next week. Let's uh, hear why Daniel McConnell, political editor with the Irish Examiner, is on the line. A very good morning to you, Daniel, and thanks for, for joining us ahead of these talks between the two main party leaders, Michal Martin and Leo Radger, to meet today. What will they be discussing? Yeah, so, Michael, I suppose the context to this is that uh, the two leaders sent letters to each other before Christmas, uh, setting out, uh, I suppose, their desire to try and, and uh, choreograph uh, the, the, the conclusion of the doll. Uh, Michal Martin, you know, has advocated a wind-down of the doll and kind of concluding around Easter time, the Taoiseach, and Fine Gael have basically said, no, a wind-down is not, is not feasible, does not work, so, and they, he'd prefer to go longer and go into May. Um, but I think from the Taoiseach's letter, he has asked something new of Michal Martin, whereas you know, for the last four years, confidence and supply has seen Fianna Fáil abstain on key votes, you know, be they the budget or motions of confidence. Um, but now Leo Varadkar has asked Michal Martin and his party to essentially support the government to prolong its life, and you know, Michal Martin has ruled that out categorically. So we're heading into this meeting amid very heightened speculation that the Taoiseach could easily pull and dissolve the doll before the, before it's due to return next Wednesday. Um, and, you know, dates being talked about are either February, Friday the February the 7th or Friday, February the 14th. So, you know, we're obviously watching and waiting to see what happens out of that meeting this evening. Um, whether there's, you know, because an awful lot of speculation has been, is, is being, or a lot of attention has been focused on the fact that the, uh, Leo Varadkar has called 
all his TDs and senators for a meeting of the parliamentary party uh, on Friday tomorrow in Dublin, which is most unusual. Normally, such meetings happen either on a Monday before the term kicks off or, you know, during while the doll is actually sitting. But the fact that they've been called up on a Friday has sort of raised eyebrows and has kind of fueled speculation that their moves afoot. And certainly speaking to a number of senior Fine Gael people last night, uh, answering yes, it's their consensus view that the Taoiseach is very much minded to, to, to cut and run, but ultimately it, it is his prerogative and his decision to make. So obviously we wait to see the conclusion of that meeting with Michal Martin this evening. Right. Uh, would he be wise to do that? Well, there's merit in, in going early because I suppose, he, you know, the, the Brexit negotiations, which has been the main sort of impediment to an, uh, an election up until now, has, has all but been concluded. Like, you know, there, you know, it's virtually certain that Boris Johnson will get the withdrawal agreement through the House of Commons before the end of the month, facilitating Brexit, the formal Brexit process on, July, on January 31st. And the government, it's the one issue throughout last year the government actually scored quite well on. Uh, you know, whereas, you know, despite all the other controversies of the National Children's Hospital, broadband, Maria Bailey, Verona Murphy, etc., 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 housing and health, mm. you know, Brexit was the one issue that they actually did all right on, and certainly the public seemed to. Any time there was a kind of a, a, a kind of a result on Brexit, you know, the Fine Gael poll numbers went up. So I think there's a belief that if they can choreograph the election to uh, to the point where, you know, the, the Brexit process will happen in the middle of the campaign, it may deliver a benefit to Fine Gael. It's a high-risk strategy, but that's certainly some of, some of the thinking. Um, but also as well, you know, I think there's a sense that, they, that you know, from a Fine Gael point of view, that they, you know, they can't continue to govern at the whim of Michal Martin, you know, should he decide one morning that he's not happy with a particular issue, you know, you know that's not that's not stable government, and and he basically said it's not tolerable to do that. So that's why, you know, the the sort of the, the leaders have put out their 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 demands, and whether or not they can actually come to an agreement tonight, um, it'll be very interesting to see. But certainly, the the mood music last night was was pointing one way and one way only, and that was to the dissolve being dissolved before it mm. comes back and an election on February seventh. Uh, I take it uh, that uh, the arithmetic in the doll is such that it is even riskier for the Taoiseach uh, to continue in office should he decide to do that because whilst we may uh, discuss forever and uh, a day uh, the problems that the government are facing into at any time uh, there's uh, Brexit as you say uh, as a, a good reason to suggest uh, that the government has been doing a good job but apart from that uh, if Fianna Fáil won't lend its support to the government in motions against the government, uh, those motions could come from somebody else who is currently supporting the current uh, uh, coalition. Yeah, and what's clear now is that the government, even with Fianna Fáil uh, abstentions, can't get any legislation through on its own. It needs the help of outside people. So what happened was in the vote of confidence in Owen Murphy uh, before Christmas, it was the votes of Michael Lowry, Noel Grealish and Dennis Knockham that saw the government uh, stay in office. But it, what is clear is that those three would find it very difficult to reciprocate that. And, you know, there's talk of, you know, Michael Collins was on radio this morning, the Cork Southwest TD, you know, Independent, was on radio this morning talking of the, the chance of a, a motion of no confidence in Simon Harris. So all of that would certainly, you know, heighten the stakes yeah. of, of this meeting this evening because, it, you know, the fundamental uh, job of a government is to get legislation passed. And if you can't do that, if you can't get legislation passed, well, then there really is no reason for staying in office. So, and John McGuinness of Fianna Fáil said he'd have voted uh, against um, Owen Murphy or he would vote if there was a, another vote of confidence on housing. Uh, and indeed, you were reporting earlier this week that Dennis Nocton will decide on a vote-by-vote basis. 
Yeah, so, I mean, Dennis Lachlan was very clear that, I mean, since he resigned as government minister, he has decided he's taken every issue as they've come. But I suppose in light of the uncertainty, one may have expected him to say, to commit his uh, support for the government to say, listen, no, I'll back them on. I, I won't be the cause of this thing going down. But for him to hold his position saying that he's, he's going on a case-by-case basis just adds to that element of uncertainty. And, you know, what is very clear from, from uh, the arithmetic and from everything is, you know, that it, we're very much in the dying days of this particular doll. Like, it, you know, it, it has run longer than most, if not all people, said it would or thought it would. Um, but it really can do no more fundamental or, you know, meaningful business given the numbers in the doll. And, and I think... I think what what what's driving a lot of the sort of choreography and driving a lot of posturing that we've seen from both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil over the last week or so is a fear of being blamed for causing the election. I mean that that that's kind of a you know no one wants to be blamed for saying well you you've acted recklessly because that's something that the the public could, could easily vent their fury on at the ballot box. So that's why I think you know, what you're seeing is you know Leo Varadkar makes an offer to uh, uh, Michal Martin that he just can't accept. Therefore, he has sufficient cover to allow him to kind of go to the public and say, listen, we don't have the numbers in the doll. Mm. Brexit is all but finished. And, you know, we, we, you know, we didn't get agreement with Fianna Fáil to, to kind of extend the life of the government until the summertime. Therefore, we have no option but to call an election. And you know, Is that it a case of damned if you do and damned if you don't from the Taoiseach's perspective in that he may be damned if he calls an election, but uh, if he returns next week to a state of paralysis, uh, he may be damned for that as well? Yeah, I mean, I mean there's a difficulty in terms of you know, Fine Gael are nine years in office now and, you know, things are going wrong for them. You know, as I said, they had a very bad 2019. You know, there were various uh, issues in relation to, you know, Broadband Children's Hospital, the Verona Murphy, you know, Maria Baby, all damaged their standing in the eyes of the public as well also, as well, you know, the Finance Minister Pascal Dunne who suffered some damage in relation to his credentials about, you know, fiscal prudence. Um, you know, well, you know, particularly, I'm, I'm noting the the, the the criticism from the fiscal advisory council, which really did kind of damage his halo because he was seen as untouchable for for quite a while. And what you're beginning to see, I suppose, is just the strains of being in office for so long. You know, and there does come a point in the political cycle where people just get fed up with you, and you know, get fed up with, um, with looking at the same faces and hearing the same mistakes and the same failures. Mm. And and the, the, the sort of the RIC commemoration battle yeah. this, this this week has sort of just highlighted. You know, when you know when the game is going against you, certain things, little things, will start to go wrong. Um, but and that's why I think you know that's why I think Fine Gael would be keen to try and tie in. Uh, any success around Brexit uh, to to polling day because they think it's the one issue, as I said, that they, they, that they actually did and polled quite well on last year. So I think what they think it may be, well, if we if we call an early election, it's you know the the Brexit process happens smack bang in the middle of the election campaign. We get a bit of a bounce from that. Also, if the hope you know if the, if the Northern Ireland situation can resolve itself, you know all of a sudden you, you can see you know, bilateral meetings between Leo and Boris in the middle of a campaign looking mm. statesmanlike and looking good. So, you know, there is, a sort of a, there is a sort of a kind of even a vague strategy, uh, uh, you know, at play sure. as to why an, uh, why an early election would, would work. There's a but, storm, you know, whether it's perfect or not, is another day's work. Uh, but that's what uh, those uh, involved in this will have to assess. Do you expect to hear a definitive statement this evening? Probably not definitively. I think what you might see is, you know, we, uh, robust discussions, it may, you know, I think there may be kind of, you know, gaps still still at play. Um, but if um, that fundamental issue of Fianna Fáil not voting for the government can't be resolved, then I really can't see any other matter really making any difference. You know, if, if, if that's the fundamental question, if that can be, if that can be addressed tonight, um, then then 
but I don't think that's likely. I just, you know, Fianna Fáil have made it clear that they're not going to go that way. So I ultimately can't see how this arrangement can continue, and ultimately that would lead me to conclude that the Taoiseach would be minded. He'll hold this parliamentary party meeting tomorrow. The, you know, the, he'll get everything ready. He'll go to the park either Monday or Tuesday, and then we're, you know we're 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 off into a, a kind of a snap general election campaign. I, I I would think, you know, I would be highly surprised uh, if we come out of the meeting tonight saying, well, now all of a sudden we have agreed a, a timetable until a, uh, April or May, because I just given the demands that are being placed down either one of the parties is going to have to back down pretty significantly and I just don't see that happening. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for that analysis. Daniel McConnell, political editor of the Irish Examiner. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. As Daniel McConnell said to us, some things have gone well for the government, some things are not going as well for the government and hospital overcrowding has been a real issue of late. Overcrowding in Navin at Our Ladies has been a very serious problem in the course of the last week and Marie Kearns has been asking people in Navin about the government and the hospital. As far as I'm concerned now, um, the government has done absolutely nothing for the health service in this country. And it's just not good enough, especially Navin Hospital, which is a local hospital. I believe that the beds have decreased in it, which isn't good enough, you know what I mean? And this county is badly needed. And then when there's a flu or a bad flu and there's a demand, yeah. there's nowhere for them to and, go. And there's an ageing population as well, which isn't helping matters either. But look, at the young and the old need to be looked after in this country. And as far as I'm concerned, the government aren't doing that. The government, should they have been prepared for this? Of course they should be. They're long enough round now. What are they, nine years in, in government at the minute? You know what I mean? So, look at It's all about them and it's not about the people in the country as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, they need to have more uh, facilities for people. You know, beds especially. People are on trolleys and corridors and in A&E. You know, and I was in hospital two weeks before Christmas and I was in a trolley trolley in A&E for two, de- two nights and two days. And how was that? Oh, it was very uncomfortable. And it was, like, they were very nice now in the A&E, but, I mean... I'd have preferred to be in a ward in a bed, you know. And where were you? I was in a in Navin. So two nights, and there was just no beds? There was no beds in any wards at all. And there was a lot more people than me in the a and on beds as well, old people and everything, you know. So I would be very concerned about it, yeah. And did you feel that it affected your recovery? Well, not really, no. I didn't, it didn't affect me recovery, but it just wasn't as comfortable as a bed, a trolley, you know. It's very hard to sleep in it, you know. Movement going all the time. So I couldn't sleep, you know. So that's that'd be my comment on it. You know, they could do with more more help in the and in the hospitals. You know, it's dreadful. Oh, it's a disgrace, just a complete disgrace. That's what it is. Have you ever been affected yourself? Well, not too bad. Touch wood, thank God. But it is desperate. It's desperate. And what would you like to see done? Oh, what would I like to see done? Well, I'd like to see more beds. And should the doctors and nurses are, you know, chock-a-block? And what do you do? I don't know. It's desperate. It's really, really desperate. Something needs to be done urgently. Have you been affected or any family member? Well, no, I haven't, to be fair. But um, it's just, it's, it's awful when you hear it on the, on the radio all the time, like, you know, about what's going on and nothing seems to be getting done. They need to sort out um, the staff in crisis for a start. Um, it's no wonder the nurses are leaving in their droves, like, you know. A person of my age. Do you mind me asking what age? Um, 90. Fair play to you. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I wanted to go in for any particular reason, I, I, I don't think 
I would get near the place at the moment. But up to now, I was reasonable treated. But but now the warning people not to come, to come near the place, and uh, would it put you off going if you needed to go? You you would yeah. But what you been being? Uh, I've been living on your own. It, it, it's very hard not to contact people. You know, to get in because you just can't manage on your own. But thank God I, I'm okay so far. So far. But, but, but uh, it is horrible at the moment. It couldn't be any worse. It's concerned a lot, yeah, for the elderly. A while ago there, a couple of weeks, there was a kid child on the floor and all that, you know. It's, it's disgraceful. There's no beds. There's no houses for housing. There's nothing being done. They need to pull their finger out in all fairness, you know. Are you concerned about the situation in our hospitals at the moment? Yes. Why? Massive problems. Massive problems. And do you think the HSE are doing their job? The who? HSE. HSE. Do you know what that means? What? A horror of egots. That's what you think? Yes. <laughs> Government should be shot. Base, that's it, really. They're a disgrace. Every year, this is going to happen every year, yeah. they know. And they wait till the flu or atom comes around. They wait till January to, to start saying they're going to try and do something. They're doing nothing. Should be shot. But I feel sorry for the people that's going to A&E. Do you know what I mean? But basically... They should put out. It makes no difference who goes in. They're never going to fix it. And would it put you off? Say you know now that Navin, that there is, you know, people waiting in A&E. Would you put you off going into hospital if you needed to go in? Of course I would, yeah. You'd, you'd hang on the last minute, you know what I mean? Unless it's a necessity to go up there. And that's not good either? No, it's not, no, no. Especially people with, with serious illnesses, like, you know, they're probably afraid to go up because they be, think they're taking up time or whatever, like, you know, and fits out with the staff. Well, I am concerned because I hear it's quite drastic, but on a personal level, my sister had to go to hospital in the Limerick Regional University Hospital just before Christmas, and she wasn't on a trolley, and she did get a bed, and she was superbly looked after, and she was in for over a week. So on personal experience, it seems to be working sometimes, but it obviously it's a problem for others. I think it's a disgrace. I think like, every hospital you go into, you see the people on the trolleys there on the corridors, and it's a pure disgrace. Like, and you'd feel sorry for the people themselves, their dignity and everything there, like, you know what I mean? passers-by and everything. It's just an utter disgrace in this country, this day and age. What would you like to see the government do? Well, I'd like to see them now. I mean, there's a lot of hospitals that have plenty of spaces that could open them up and put the patients into them, put beds into them, like, you know what I mean? I mean, I've seen in Navin Hospital there, there's extra wards there, there's no patients in them at the moment, and yet there's patients on the corridors. Like, it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous now. It's very bad. I have a friend in Limerick and her mother-in-law's very sick, can't get her a bed. She's just in the A&E. And how long is she there? She's been there now three days and she has cancer. So That's a terrible extra worry and burden on the family. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. You know, they're trying to cope with cope with the, the, the mother and they don't even want them in the aim. There's only one person allowed in with them. This is true. There's only one person allowed in with them. When her sister was there, they had, had to tell her to get out because there just wasn't room in the A&E. It's, it's a crazy situation. Yeah, I think it's, it's just bad the way it is at the moment, you know. I mean, the government want to start acting there, you know, because this waiting on trolleys and everything is just ridiculous, you know. This Strong thoughts there and many thanks uh, to those people who took time out of uh, their day yesterday to share their thoughts with Marie Kearns in Navin Forest. And that brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.